The Optometry Talks podcast series is brought to you by Optometry New South Wales ACT, your peak professional body. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Optometry Talks. My name is Audrey Malloy, and I'm joined here today by my colleague, Paula Catalinic, Professional Services Manager at Optometry New South Wales ACT. Hi, Audrey. Happy to be here with you. Today, we're going to talk about maintaining optimal mental health and well-being, particularly in your early career. And Paula, I'm so pleased that our special guest, Sarah O'Doherty, is able to join us today. Yes, it's wonderful to have her with us. Sarah has been a registered psychologist for nearly 10 years. She has a background in youth mental health and early intervention and supporting young adults to navigate their challenges. In her private practice, she helps clients with anxiety and stress management, post-traumatic stress and complex or historical trauma, as well as interpersonal and relationship difficulties. Sarah considers herself to be a feminist psychologist in progress and as there is always more to learn and loves working with women and non-binary people on issues surrounding identity, sexuality, well-being and empowerment. Wow. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Paula, and thank you, Audrey. So can I ask, Sarah, first of all, what is a feminist psychologist in progress? So first of all, I want to just acknowledge the fact that psychology as as an old uh, profession, getting to know people and getting to understand where people are coming from is a very individualistic sort of pursuit. We're looking at what is happening within the individual and then we're working on strategies to help that individual, getting that individual to help themselves within their context. When we think about feminism, feminism really thinks about the context and the um, circles that that person inhabits. So that person's relationships, that person's cultural and societal sphere that they might inhabit, and the structures of power, of hierarchy, and of all of the other intersecting marginalizations that they might encounter. And when we think about those broader circles Um, that impact on an individual, we get to sort of understand a little bit more about how those might be influencing that person from an individual level and also how we can look at how to break out of some of those structures that might be impeding or harming their mental health. And it's such a massive field, but it doesn't actually play much of a part in Australian psychology. And so that's very much one of my interests. And one of the things I'm hoping to change and influence a little bit in my career. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, so just on that point about the the Australian sort of psyche, you know, you do this for a living. What What is the mental health of our young health professionals looking like today, especially sort of two years into a pandemic? Are you seeing an increase in burnout and anxiety and those sorts of issues? Absolutely. I mean, it is very much, I think, with any kind of helping profession, we have all been, I think, at the forefront of having to put ourselves and our own mental health aside in order to help the general public and our clients and our patients. And sometimes I think that this has um, been really impactful on a lot, of, a lot of professionals in any sort of helping profession. And I think when we think about the workplace structures that a lot of early career helping professionals, so like optometrists, um, are in, there has been so much upheaval and um, I guess instability in their professional work and um, how they are doing their jobs during the pandemic. 
Sarah, other, other than concerns related to the pandemic, what other external factors contribute to anxiety, depression and burnout? I guess I like to look at it from a almost like a Maslow's hierarchy model, if you guys are familiar with that. So if you're thinking about all of our basic needs, so if we're not getting enough sleep, if perhaps we are um, you know, changing our diets because we're you know, maybe getting a, a bit more Uber Eats in lockdown, um, so eating, sleeping, getting enough fresh air and enough sunlight, getting enough exercise, all of those absolute basic necessities to keep our body healthy. And then being able to build on that and have that safety and security and predictability of having those things on a regular basis. Um, and then on top of that, and again, we can see that this has been stripped away during the last couple of years during the pandemic, um, is our social connections and our social needs. Um, and so all of those things contribute very much so to our mental health. After that, we then sort of start to look at our esteem needs so what makes us what makes us feel like a human basically what makes us feel like a person um, having uh, the ability to belong being able to contribute to something bigger than ourselves what makes us feel fulfilled and satisfied mm. thanks Sarah wow that's really interesting um, it's certainly one of the things that we've we've noticed with our early career optometrists when they come out of uni and go into employment they sort of lose a little bit of that sort of like identity and you know kind of wonder mm. wonder what they're doing after a few years but before before we get to that I, I just one of the questions I've always wondered about is what is it about health professionals such as optometrists that makes them particularly prone to this these sort of issues have they got a particular um, personality type or um, you know are there environmental factors even like the lack of natural light or anything like that mm. that would contribute to these issues I mean, I don't want to, to generalize, but I can see that there are lots of sort of um, overlapping factors that might come into play. Um, you know, I think that anyone who has gone through um, a rigorous um, university career and has been a high achiever and been able to, you know, get to uh, a profession that is, you know, highly competitive, it means that they are wanting to do well. Um, and on top of that, there is probably also, like in any sort of helping profession, um, there's a desire to be providing a really great service to the public. Um, and I think that that would be sort of fueling that perhaps, you know, competitive spirit. And, you know, that might also be contributing to, you know, levels of stress and that sense of, you know, am I doing enough? Am I doing a great job? Um, and I think also when we're looking at workplaces, you know, you mentioned environmental factors. There's things like, you know, working in, for instance, you know, um, uh, an optometrist in a shopping center where mm -hmm. there are fluorescent lights uh, and there's not a lot of access to natural light uh, or fresh air. Um, we end up feeling as though we're crammed into a little box after a little after a while and then um, it becomes sort of difficult to regain a sense of, you know, what is normal, um, which I think can be quite challenging. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Optometrists definitely um, often work in quite small, tight um, consulting rooms. And I think that's mm. been a, with the, uh, the whole issue about ventilation and COVID and, you know, Absolutely. that could be also contributing to some anxiety, I guess. 
Yeah, and mm. that lack of natural light. I mean, it's not just the shopping center. It's the, the, the consulting room deliberately has no natural light. It's able to shut down into yes. almost darkness so they can, um, you know, properly examine the eye. So you may mm. end up spending seven or eight hours a day in a room that has no windows at all. Yes. Um, I know personally that that really affected me when I worked full time in clinical practice. Um, so I'd imagine that that's certainly, you know, a, a contributing factor. Mm. Also, I would, I, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to also say that often um, I think a lot of uh, optometrists will skip their breaks. So they'll just work mm. almost continuously through the, through the day with very little break. Um, is, how do you, does that kind of contribute, do you think, to, to Absolutely. Their, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the human attention span, you know, it, it's not an eight-hour shift. Um, you know, our, our attention spans as adults is generally somewhere between sort of 40 to 60 minutes. And we can, our attention wanders, our concentration wanders. We can't really remain focused for, you know, the requisite seven and a half, eight hours a day. Um, and our brains aren't designed to function in that way. We need to be exercising and stretching our brains to be able to, you know, look out the window and, and see distance, you know, as you guys would very much know, um, and being able to modulate our light. You know, if we are um, stuck in a small dark room, then we lose um, our circadian rhythm sometimes, and that can really impact on our sleeping habits. Um, also, if we're not taking breaks, um, that we're not really getting that sense of, you know, my brain is allowed to slow down and do something else um, and relax for a period of time rather than being in that sense of perpetual stress and busy, busy, busy throughout the workday. Mm. So, Sarah, do you think it's worthwhile for optometrists to actually make a point of leaving, you know, the, the building during the day and even getting out for 15, 20 minutes into daylight? Is that something that would be worthwhile? Or um, Absolutely. It, yeah. Mm. Um, Absolutely. I think that, you know, as throughout my career, you know, I guess um, prior to even becoming um, a psychologist, I, I worked in small corporate spaces and in those sorts of spaces you know it was about making sure that you had planned breaks you know 10-15 minutes to just get up from your desk and stretch um, leave the building and get some fresh air or you know a drink of water outside or even just connecting with other people you know I think also with optometrists and also with any sort of helping profession, it could often be a really isolating and solo practice. Mm -hmm. And being able to take a lunch break outside of the workspace with somebody and exercise our brain's social connections, that would be also, I think, highly beneficial. That's mm -hmm. such great advice that I just don't think we talk enough about. So um, following on from that, Sarah, what are the warning signs or red flags that an optometrist might look for in themselves? So some of them might be um, noticing, first of all, the physiological symptoms of what stress might feel like for yourself as an individual. So that might be things like muscle tension. You know, we tend to carry quite a lot of stress and tension in our neck and shoulders, particularly if we're sitting at a desk for long periods of time or hunched over equipment potentially for long periods of time. Um, noticing if we feel as though we need to move our bodies and so listening to the cues of our bodies. Um, if our body is telling us, you know what, I need to move, I need to stretch, I need to get rid of some of that restless energy, that might be a cue to, you know, step away from the desk, 
go outside, go for a short walk um, and have some breaks. Um, sometimes it's about hunger and satiation cues. Um, you know, if we're stuck in a, a small workspace, we might be tempted to be snacking often on not particularly healthy and potentially sugary treats. Um, and if we're hungry, we do need to step away from our work and have something that is fulfilling and satisfying. Um, so noticing what kinds of um, physiological cues that you might be experiencing. Some people it might present as headaches, um, eye strain, um, poor sleep. Um, and if we notice that our appetite or our sleeping habits are changing over, you know, maybe a lengthy period of time, um, that it might be worth, you know, consulting a doctor about that. And Sarah, just what about irritability? Is that something that, um, mm -hmm. I mean, I know that's something that presents in, in me when I get very stressed that, you know, I'll end mm. up being irritable with a colleague, um, you know, much to my shame afterwards, but, you know, that's some, one of the ways sure. it presents. Is that sort of a, a red flag as well? Um, Absolutely. And, you know, we can consider that sort of irritability very much linked with stress. The outward I guess, show of irritability might be, you know, snapping or getting a bit short with people or feeling just really frustrated and pushed. Mm. Um, and I think it's important to notice the context in which that's happening and then also be able to get in touch with some of the emotions that might be underlying that irritability. So while we might be showing externally that irritability, underneath that we might be feeling tired or stretched or feeling as though we don't have adequate resources. Um, maybe there's other emotional factors that might be contributing to that irritability as well. You know, there might be um, home factors that might be contributing to that or there might be um, other kinds of um, emotional factors like sadness um, or just feeling maybe we're feeling inadequate, maybe we're feeling like we're not doing a good enough job. Um, so some of that sort of um, insecurity, self-insecurity mm. that might be coming up for some people. Okay, it's really interesting. So I guess a follow-on question from that one is what would be um, the warning signs to look for in a colleague and how would you broach them if you thought, gosh, you know, mm. she's not herself, she seems, she seems uh, very quiet or, you know, what, what sort of things are we looking for? And then how do you raise the issue with them? I guess a couple of things is... Uh, well, first of all, some of the things that we might notice would be if there's been any significant change in a colleague's behaviour. So if right. they were previously, you know, laughing and chatting and enthusiastic or optimistic about their work, and then we notice over a day or two that that behaviour might have changed. So maybe they are more quiet and withdrawn or maybe they are more agitated and stressed and snappy. Um, being able to notice that and then really, really gently, you know, maybe take that colleague aside and just ask them if they're okay. Um, ask them what's been happening in their lives and being just really sort of curious and open and non-judgmental um, is always a really great start. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I know when we looked at this on the Are You Okay Day, one of the things that came mm. up was asking okay is one thing, but saying you don't seem like yourself lately is a yes. way that the person sort of suddenly sort of has a like check, self-check and goes, oh, I'm, I'm, they're, they're noticing that I'm different. Like they're noticing it. So that's, um, yes. a, you know, a, a, something that we've been sort of trying out to see, um, you know, if, if that could help get the conversation starting. Mm, definitely. And, uh, and Sarah, would there be any link with changes in their physical appearance? I mean, is there any evidence that they might start to be not, not taking as as good a care of themselves? Or is, is that... I mean, self-care and, and how a person might present day to day could be a sign of, you know, they might be stressed or anxious or pressured or maybe they're experiencing things like sadness or depression or low mood. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think... These sorts of things, again, might be quite transient. Mm -hmm. So they might be not as um, impactful uh, or or, or I guess uh, representing uh, an impact in a person's life. But it's still absolutely worth checking in with somebody and and saying to them, oh, look, you know, I'm, I'm noticing that you're not quite yourself recently or I've noticed that, you know, um, things maybe aren't going as well uh, for you day to day. Maybe you're snapping a little bit more at people. Um, you know, I'm wondering, you know, if there's something going on or if there's any way that I can help. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. So it's not a criticism. It's more like, how can we help you? How can we support you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, what this pandemic I think has taught all of us really is we're all in this together and mm-hmm. people are coping with it as best as they can, but all to different extents. Mm. And so if we're able to, and if, we, if we've got capacity to, you know, reach out and help somebody, then, you know, I think that that's absolutely um, a wonderful thing to be able to do for our colleagues. Great. Um, so what, next question, I guess, is why do people ignore the signs or not seek support? Is that happening? Do people do that? They do. And I guess there is sometimes a sense of pride in being busy and keeping busy. And there's also, I think, quite a big expectation in a lot of workplaces to push through. And I think also a lot of people internalize that pressure and feel as though they have to push through. Um, I have to be able to do my job and be able to get everything done um, and also not complain. Because sometimes I think a lot of people feel as though if they say something, then they're seen as complaining or if they talk about their issues with somebody, then they feel as though they are a burden to that person. And that's absolutely not the case. Wow. So do you think that's one of the big barriers? Like what do you think the main barriers are to seeking support and accessing services or, you know, speaking up? I think it varies person to person, but I guess some of the key barriers that we try to overcome in getting people to access services and even just admit that there is something going on with their mental health is being able to recognize that what they're experiencing isn't normal and isn't part of what is expected for them. If they have a belief that they are supposed to just push through, then, you know, they've obviously gotten this belief from somewhere and overcoming the idea that that belief is true is quite challenging. Um, And so if they are able to recognize 
that, you know what, it is okay to speak about my mental health. Um, And there is, I think, unfortunately, still quite a stigma around talking about mental health issues. Um, Then we can start to support people to access some services. Um, but there are other there are other barriers as well. You know, people are afraid of taking time off or how they might be seen by their colleagues or by their employer. Um, but I think generally it all comes down to I think that stigma around mm. mental health. That's really interesting what you're saying about the time off. I, I know um, so many colleagues who you know will finish finish a, a job that they've had for five or six years in a place mm. where they were st- so stressed the whole time. The reason they leave is because of stress and they have all their sick leave when they leave. They haven't taken one day yes. of sick leave. It's such a common thing for us not to access yes. that. E- not necessarily a, as, it, you know, calling in at 8 a.m. to say, oh, I'm not going to be in today, but more like I-, I need to take a day off in two weeks' time for a couple of appointments that I have, like scheduling yes. it. Um, yes. I think it's a, a big thing we, we're not doing is, is t- using our sick leave. Um and okay. just stockpiling it. Um, just with the stigma, though, I, I would just, I, I mean, I've read a few things lately, some reports and, and, and statistics around um, the, the huge uptake in um, psychologist services. And I'm just wondering, are we seeing a reduction in that stigma around mental illness, maybe even precipitated by the, the, the pandemic and, and people thinking, gosh, this is something we all need to be doing? Is, is, do you think it's changing? I mean, I would absolutely hope so. Um, I think that, you know, my, my philosophy is very much that we need to access psychological support in exactly the same way that we would access medical support. You know, we wouldn't be putting off going to see the doctor if we felt sick in any way. So why would we put off um, seeking mental health support? And again, I feel like this is very much um, a cultural or societal issue that I think exists quite a lot in workplaces. So rather than it being sort of the person um, perhaps, you know, maybe being okay with seeking psychological support for themselves, it might be the barrier of talking to their workplace, talking to colleagues or talking to a manager about it that might present as the barrier to them taking time off. Mm. How How do you think we break down those barriers? What's the advice to an optometrist or an early career optometrist, Mm. say, experiencing these signs and symptoms? Honestly, it's just about normalizing the conversation. It's about having open and honest conversations with colleagues and with managers about how, how we're feeling. If somebody asks how you're feeling, how are you going today? You know, our first automatic response is often, yeah, I'm good or I'm fine. And then, you know, a few seconds pass and then you sort of go, you know what, I'm actually not going as fine as what mm. I've just said I was. Yeah. Um, so I think normalizing that sort of a conversation amongst peers and colleagues um, and even managers, I think is important. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah. there is, I think, a, a lot of fear around presenting any kind of vulnerability to colleagues and to to managers in particular um, because of that stigma. Um, And I think that when we don't believe that our managers or our colleagues are going to be supportive of us, then we're less likely to open up and be vulnerable. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, 
you know, optometrists are really, you know, as primary healthcare professionals, they're quite mm. um, focused on preventative care. So does that, um, you know, with psychology, what services and support are available for really early warning signs so that we don't get to a stage where things are really bad? What, what would you recommend? Do you know what? I would say that psychologists are also mm-hmm. in the game for preventative health care. You know, I think that there is this misconception that you have to reach a certain threshold or um, have a particular diagnosis in order to come and see a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely not the case. If you are open to seeking support for yourself, even if you don't meet the criteria, the diagnostic criteria for a mental health condition, but something just isn't feeling right, then having someone impartial to talk to who is able to support you through whatever it is that you might be experiencing is 100% beneficial for you. Mm. It's pretty easy to get a mental health plan from a GP. I mean, if you go and say, look, I'm not feeling great, I I feel a bit low, Um, I'd love to go and see a psychologist. I mean, that's really all you need to say. You don't need to have a... uh, Uh, you know a a diagnosis in place it's just I'm not feeling great I'd like to get these services and it makes a huge difference to the cost of it doesn't it if they have one of these plans it does so at the moment Medicare is rebating up to 20 sessions with a psychologist Mm. so that means that you can have you know fortnightly sessions for a year nearly um, with a psychologist Um, and I guess you know if we're thinking about the cost of it as well you know psychologists, generally speaking, we can also take private health rebates if you don't want to be using a mental health care plan, or you can also, you know, come in and pay privately. Um, So I guess there are different sorts of ways to access a psychologist. And if cost is an issue, most psychologists will be able to happily talk to you about fees and rebates and how to make it easier for you to access a psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really good to know. I think it is definitely a barrier. Um, I think the, how much is it going to cost? How am I going to get time off? But if you thought I have my, my mental health plan now, which gets me these sessions, rebates on the sessions, I've got sick leave. I'm going to book a day off in two weeks time so that no, I'm not letting anybody down. And then how do they find a psychologist? Is the GP the best source for that or word of mouth or how do you find someone that's going to suit you you have to try a few out there's there's you're you're right there's a lot of different sort of uh, pathways to access I mean my first point of call would be you know go and see your local GP if you've got a trusted GP who you've got an existing relationship with then they will be able to recommend some psychologists that they've had contact with in your local area Mm -hmm. and if that is something that you're interested in Generally speaking, they're not going to recommend anybody who they don't trust. So, for instance, I've got really great trusting relationships with a lot of the GPs um, who I work with very closely. Um, and that, I think, is is invaluable when you're going to see um, a psychologist. Um, another way of finding a psychologist is going through um, basically they're called find a psychologist page. So mm. they're there's an association that I belong to, which is the Australian Association of Psychologists. And there's a find a psychologist um, page for the public on their website. Um, And of course there are, there's good old Google. If you Google a psychologist in your local area, you'll be able to find um, 
a plethora of psychologists and then being able to read through their bios, read through their profiles, um, see a picture of them, maybe even see, you know, what their consulting rooms look like. Um, All of that helps a person to feel a little bit more at ease with this idea of going to basically a stranger's office and opening up to them. Yeah. That's that's been such a great conversation. Sarah, finally, what are your top three tips for maintaining good mental health so that it's less likely to become an issue in the future? So I have this little... um, three tips for a good day, which I like to give out to a lot of my clients. And they're super basic, so I'd love to share it with your listeners. Um, The first tip is do one thing that you need to do for yourself. And a lot of the time we consider that to be work, but perhaps it's booking an appointment or maybe it's booking a holiday. That's absolutely something that we need to be doing for ourselves. Or it could be something small like paying a bill or cleaning up the dishes in the sink, doing something for yourself. The second thing is do something for your body. If you listen to your body, if you're noticing the cues of your body, your body might be telling you to move. It might be telling you to eat. It might be telling you to have a really long, hot shower. Whatever it is that you think your body needs, listen to your body. And then the third thing is do something to connect with people. And this could be having a really great conversation with a colleague or a peer. Maybe it's getting in touch with some friends. Maybe it's replying to the SMSs that we haven't been replying to and we've been dodging for a little while. So Mm -hmm. connecting with somebody in a meaningful way. And I think if we can do at least one thing from each of those three categories every day, that's going to go a long way to looking after our mental health. Wow, love that's that. great. Yeah, I love that. I love the first one. I mean, I, s- I totally get that idea of even if it's paying a bill or making an appointment, you feel like, mm. God, that was been, oh, that's been on the to-do list for ages and I've just yes. done it now. I can cross it off. I feel so much lighter even just doing this one little thing. And it's not even a fun thing ne- necessarily. No. It's just a thing that you had to do that's now done. So I love yeah. that. Absolutely. And that's it was great. taking up a lot of brain space thinking about it, not <laughs> doing it, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, that's Absolutely. great. I think sometimes when we consider, you know, the things that we need to do, um, they they seem to be so big and so overwhelming. But then when we do it, it gives us such a sense of achievement. Mm. And mental health isn't just about feeling positive or feeling good. It's about having that sense of achievement and mastery. And if we can get something out of the way, that sense of achievement can buoy us through the rest of the day. Wow. I know when my kids when my kids were babies, my neighbor said to me, she said, in the morning, she said, um, make your bed, have a shower, and put on a wash. And if you do those three things, then it doesn't really <laughs> matter what else happens in the day. And I thought, 100%. really? Make, put on a wash? That's a good thing. And honestly, it was so helpful. So just <laughs> feeling that sense that you've least done something, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, wow. Well, um, look, that's been a really interesting discussion, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us about all these important things today. Yes, my pleasure. Um, thanks so much, Sarah. 
Um, just to wrap it up a little, so for our listeners, if you need further help at any stage, don't be a stranger. The, the team at Optometry New South Wales ACT is here to support you and we're just a phone call or an email away. You can call us directly here on uh, 9712-2199 or you can call Optometry Australia National Office as well. Yeah. So yeah, stay in touch with us. We can help you. We can even, you know, find out what you need and get you the resources if you're stuck on anything. Um, So that concludes this episode of Optometry Talks. Huge thanks to our uh, special guests, Sarah Doherty and to Paula, my colleague. You can find out more about supporting your mental health from other podcasts in this series. And thanks so much for joining us today. This episode of Optometry Talks was brought to you compliments of Optometry New South Wales ACT. 